This is the Real Estate Addicts Podcast, episode 15, with your hosts, Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. And today we are joined by... Brian Gregory, Architect and Urban Planner, Gamble Associates in Cambridge, Mass. Awesome. Welcome, Brian. Thanks. Thanks for coming here. Glad to be here. Yeah, kind of across the river. Yeah. <laughs> Dangerous territory. With the red line in these states, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you were an Eastie guy for a little while. I was. Actually, uh, 10 years. So where are you now? Back in suburbia? Uh, a little bit. Just moved north to uh, Melrose. Awesome. We won't disclose your, your address for privacy reasons. That's good. I don't <laughs> want any eggs at the house. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Brian, first question. Something that's been on a lot of our listeners' mind. What is wrong with the uh, City Hall in Boston? Oof. The building or the process? Oh, no, no. Oh, no. I don't mean those <laughs> All in of it. the those, above. Not <laughs> in it, no. The, the architecture, the brutalist design that we've all known come and to love. So I, my favorite way of referring to it, it's, I can't take credit for it, is it's the crate that Finial Hall came in. So you sort of see it looming in the background there. Uh, that's a popular one. You know, I think it was very of its day. And it was an attempt at a new face for Boston. So they demolished this huge amount of the city in Scully Square, put up the whole master plan. And uh, it was this building that was sort of inspired by uh, Le Corbusier's Upside Down Monastery. And it probably worked, maybe hopefully, pretty well at the time. But I think one of its fatal flaws is its lack of adaptability, probably. So it's, it's just sort of petrified in the moment. And I remember getting a tour of it when I was in architecture school. And my teacher was a big fan of modernism. And former Mayor Menino was not. And his chief of staff felt the same way. And so she took us on this like hate tour of the building. And my poor teacher the whole time was like, no, 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 no. She's like, every time we have to run a wire, we get out a 20-inch drill bit with a diamond tip on it. We need to change a light bulb. It's a cherry picker. So oh, I was going to say, to like go to move walls in that place must be absurd. It is. It's, it's a Herculean building. I would say one of its fatal flaws actually is on the back side of it. So the side that faces Faneuil Hall, there are actually some functions in that big brick section that's below the concrete. But it's all, there's no windows in it. So when you're on, I guess it's New Congress Street or Congress Street, it doesn't do anything for the street wall. Like you're on the Feniel Hall side, there's like people beatboxing, there's people, you know, shopping, doing things. And then the other side of the street is just dead because there's Fortress. nothing there. Yeah, no there windows, is, there's, there's no activation, yeah. which is a big buzzword, right? Exactly. Um, so if know, they there's did public something, engagement on that side. Yeah. So they're hoping to help that with a plan they've got. There's a new plan for the plaza you were alluding to, but the building itself could use a lot of help. <laughs> so what does what does Gamble Associates do, and what do you like? What are your what's your role there? Can you give us a little background on that? Sure. So I'm an associate. I've been there a little over five years, and we are an architecture and urban design firm. Uh, the vast majority of what we do is working with towns, municipalities uh, around Boston. So a lot of the sort of first ring suburbs and smaller cities like Everett, Chelsea, Dedham, Arlington do anything from design guidelines, which are sort of these series of documents that go along with zoning to try to codify what kind of development the town is looking for, to master plans for the downtown, so trying to identify new development opportunities, different ways of configuring streets maybe, or uh, sort of a change in the orientation of the downtown fabric. And the last thing we do a lot is actually development test fits. So uh, either municipalities or private developers sometimes will come to us and ask, you know, here's a parcel of property. What kind of developments could you put onto this? And a lot of times for when municipalities do it, they either own the land and want to get, you know, release it 
to uh, private developers, or it's to try to figure out how their zoning is impeding development, which actually you're getting some more enlightened people in zoning departments who want to sort of loosen it up a little bit. You know what's a good example is Lynn. I, I know I've been on a soapbox lately, but um, just listening to some developers who have done business in Lynn recently, they really are trying to you know let people um, let people go, offer a little more free reign, and let the market do its work, and it seems to be successful. I mean, in an urban environment, I mean, you should be if you're trying to get more dense. You know, you kind of have to loosen the reins a little bit. I mean, we when we had Mark Lacasse and some of the other folks on here, I mean. He said almost no building in the city of Boston conforms. Well, that's to zoning. Thing. So it's like, you know, if you, we won't go down that road, but, <laughs> you know, we've already have. But I mean, some people feel that they're, do they do that on purpose to control the pipeline, control what's going on. But at the same time, you know, you have this housing, quote unquote, housing crisis, and they're trying to build all these, you know, tens of thousands of, you know, buildings or, or units in the next, what, five, 10 years. It's just, well, let's talk about that. Let's say that there's one end of the spectrum, which is Texas, which we allude to a lot, and the other end may be Boston. Where where should we yeah, be why, on that? What is the happy medium? Why why prescribe uses and densities, et cetera? What does an urban planner feel, or how do you feel, Brian? Sure. No, that that's a great question. So they could afford to be loosened up. I mean, Boston zoning is from the 50s and 60s, so it's incredibly outdated. There are moves to overhaul that. Actually, uh, my firm will be working with uh, the Boston Planning and Development uh, Agency to uh, work on Plannies Boston. One of the hopeful end results of that will be a, a deep dive into the zoning to try to modernize it. But um, I don't know if the Houston model is the best model. Uh, just me personally, with my my background. And what? Sorry, what is the Houston model for people uh, that don't know? It's basically no zoning. You can just build anything. So you'll have like a church next to a strip club, next to a cemetery, next to a daycare. Next, next, to next to a skyscraper. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> literally anything. I mean, some of it will just naturally go because the market will dictate, you know, in downtown Houston, the land is too expensive. You better build a skyscraper to get your ROI to work out. But other than that, it's uh, it's uh, free for all. Quick We're, sidebar. Have you guys ever heard that churches or religious organizations do not need to comply with zoning? Or you can build theirs. That is not an allowable, not a forbidden use anywhere. You ever heard that? In the city or Boston? No, or, like in the United States. It's like I a federal thing? Yeah, I should fact check before you I put that, that on our podcast. Yeah, but might have to double check that. Anyway. Interesting. I'm not sure. I know that steeples are typically ex- excluded in zoning. From height? From height. Yeah, from yeah. height, which is <laughs> yeah, funny. The yeah. building might be, but the, there's always a caveat steeple. in there. It's no like livable space, right? Penta- <laughs> penthouses, elevator headhouses, uh, parapets, and steeples. I'm always like, oh. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. That's, you don't so see bizarre. a lot of people building new churches, but okay. Yeah. Well, they just built one in uh, Seaport. They had to rebuild That's that true. one. That's true. Yeah, they did a nice job. Yeah, it's actually really, really. It's cool. an interesting community give back. Talk about mitigation from other developments. Part of that church was built by proceeds from a related uh, development, but they also bought some of the land from that church. Uh, so we go into that another time. But we we interrupted you, Brian. You were talking a little bit about Houston versus our model here. And well, one thing that might be a, a possible way to go. You know, it's it's harder sometimes to do in larger cities because there's a lot more land and more variety of development. But is a form based code, which I think. Mark, you and I talked about briefly beforehand, but it's an idea of instead of prescribing the uses, it's more about prescribing the general envelope of development. So sort of the, the size or the scale or maybe the floor to floor heights or other things. And it's actually funny because it's a little of a throwback somewhat almost to in Paris when Houseman, I'm getting into history here a bit, made all the grand boulevards and avenues in, in Paris that they're all known for, the Champs-Élysées and such. 
it was more about they dictated the height of the buildings and the floor to floors and sort of let people fill in. But the streets are incredibly consistent and sort of architecturally very harmonious. But the development was allowed to go as it would sort of behind that. So if you did more of that, you might have the market dictate what it needs because you do sometimes see communities trying to do more mixed-use development, which is generally a great idea in a sort of a downtown or a village center. Not always the best idea a little further out where it may make sense to do just straight residential and you're losing residential units to some vestigial ground floor retail, which sometimes is basically a lost leader for the developer. Absolutely. We'll pro forma commercial space oftentimes at, you know, zero dollars and anything we get is gravy. It's, it's, it's a pretty tough sell, but we include it because, the, you know, the project works and that's going to be a requirement of it. Are you saying that even a lot of developments in the city of Boston right now, you're required to have ground floor commercial? Is that what they're going for? Even in non, like, corridor type avenues like Dodd Ave, et cetera, they're making you do it outside the core? Sometimes. Some, sometimes they'll require it and it goes back and forth. And sometimes there are ways around it a little bit. So if you're doing a larger development, I've seen developers, because a lot of times we're sort of working on a municipality's behalf, but talking with the developer and their architect going back and forth, they'll move the amenity space down to the first floor. So it'll provide some ground floor activation or give a different sense of scale. But it'll be like the fitness room or, you know, in the lobby and some other things will cluster there just so it's not just so it's a little more in keeping with the streetscape. But you will see it sometimes too spread out, and it can just be sort of dead space and actually contribute to a space feeling. It's uh, more awkward. Yeah, because if you have rental spaces that aren't being rented, it looks like the area has an issue sometimes. Personally, like what National Development did with Inkblock, they had all these ground floor residential units, and for marketing purposes, they pushed these as masonettes. Very French sounding, but um, this was your private entry off the street. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I mean, Jason alluded to it. He, in the buildings that he's building, he'd rather spend the money on nicer finishes in the units rather than spending money on these amenities space, quote-unquote amenity spaces that mm-hmm. people won't really use. Yeah, no, and it can also be a way to encourage people to go out to the community more. Yeah. So it's, it, I don't think it's bad that they have them, and some of them are really great spaces. Who's the urban planning there? Sure, <laughs> but you know, if you want people to go out and get a membership at the local gym and right. use their community more, sometimes it's a good thing to sort of not provide everything in a hermetically sealed single yeah. development. <laughs> I agree. Unless it's like a gigantic, like, you know. Yeah, or it's hundreds row. of thousands of square, millions yeah. of square feet. Yeah, and they'll typically have things like pools or courtyards right. or other things that right. aren't. I but, get um, that. But yeah, and, and to your point about the front door access with the maisonettes and such, that's actually a really good way to do street-level activation that's not necessarily a retail use. So that's one of those instances where I've seen ones where they'll do Uh, podium parking sort of in the middle, cap it with like, you know, a courtyard space, you know, that the residents share. And then in front of that, though, on the basically first or maybe first and second floor, it'll almost be like a townhouse unit where you have a front door and there's a main lobby and that gets you into sort of the donut above. I think a quick story that supports Houston's view of zoning is if you look at um, Wall Street in New York, post 9-11, they looked at that space as they were rebuilding that district. And they said, you know, for the longest time, residential has been a forbidden use. This was dictated by planners as office space for banks and the like. Post 9-11, they opened it up. They said, you know, we hear that people might want to live here. Today, fast forward, what, 10, 12 years, Wall Street's 50% residential. Yeah, there's Everything a huge push built. for residential yeah. da- in downtown New York now. 
So some czar of zoning said at one point of time, but I think that the the market and all of us collectively said, we'd love to live near where we work. Why don't you open that up? <laughs> Are you citing that episode of Econ Talk that you sent yes. last couple of weeks ago? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that was very interesting. Uh, you want to dive into that real quick and we can get to the parking topic because I believe that was one of the topics where their guest felt that he was like a, a self-hating uh, urban planner. So we'll, we'll provide he's like, a yeah, to he's this. like a love or hate kind of guy. You know, he said at the very end that he, he had his book selling and he's gotten some feedback. He's like, I don't think a lot of people have read it yet because I haven't gotten feedback of, I just hate it. <laughs> he, <laughs> oh. He's a French urban planner. Who's very much like uh, the equivalent of a free market capitalist where okay. just let the markets yeah. do what they will. So Interesting. But, I, but it was an interesting comment about parking where it's very interesting. I, and we had a conversation on the phone together before the podcast. We were talking about it. So in Boston, everybody, it's a love-hate thing, mostly love with the, the cars. But we find it interesting. And you had alluded to using private property in public spaces. Maybe you can bring us back to that conversation real quick. And how that kind of ties into the today's urban planning as well. Sure. So um, how do you feel about parking? <laughs> it's always a fraught issue. I always like to joke when we're at public meetings, people love parks and parking. Those are the two things they want. They don't want your building, they want parks and parking. <laughs> Parking's a sticky issue. I think that in urban areas where public transportation is pretty good, like like downtown Boston or even the general urban Boston area, there is an argument to be made to sort of trying to push people towards those because the less cars on the there's a limited capacity of road for cars. And so one of the the things and what I had alluded to was this idea in neighborhoods that on-street parking is sort of sacrosanct and it's sort of quote-unquote owned by the people there. And it's not really, I, I look back at these historic photos of Boston before cars and, you know, the streets were just public places where everyone could do everything. But now a large portion of those are held by private properties on private uh, possessions, i.e. cars. So I was saying it's, you know, some people say, you know, that's my parking spot. And I'm like, no, 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 it's, it's paid for by public tax dollars. It would be the equivalent of you know, if you took your washer and dryer and left it in the park down the street, <laughs> plugged in and locked up and well, said, you well, know, I don't have room for, for laundry in my unit, Brian. <laughs> exactly. So it's it's interesting because the same people who will force developers to put on-site parking are a lot of times the people who use the on-street parking. They don't want to lose it. So that's why they want you to put it on site, but they fundamentally don't. So it's sort of, you know, I got mine. Maybe a better a example is like I have a grill and I, I'm going to store it out in the street or something. Yeah, it, It's yeah. a good point that when you do look at the old black and white photos of what cities used to look like, it's all storefront, it's all walkable. Mm -hmm. You see the horse and carriage now today would be an Uber or a taxi or a private car. Do you think that we're ruining cities with park, public parking? Do you think it makes them uglier, it encourages more trash? And I don't know, just cars just, they don't add anything to the landscape besides just uh, something you're used to seeing at this point. Yeah, they don't necessarily. I mean, there are some instances where you can use them constructively to do traffic calming or other things. So parallel parking can sometimes tighten a street or they have sort of reverse back-end parking, which is pretty safe and can allow you. So so I think it makes sense in, in areas that have like smart commercial districts, the ability for people to just pop in and out makes sense. And we're never going to go backwards because you really can't. At this point, people sort of park on the streets and that's, that's how it slowly crept along. But, uh, you know, on the days where they clear out the parking from Newbury Street in downtown Boston, it is just amazing. I and it's love a, it. It's a little of a one-off, granted, but it gives you an idea of what the street looks like without cars. And have it you is ever walked down uh, Memorial Drive when they close that? I have not, but it's actually right around where I work, so I should. I just they, never over there on the weekend. Yeah, every in the summer they have a couple weekends a year in the summer where they close Memorial Drive all the entire length down. 
it's incredible. You can just bike down it. You can walk down it. It's it's amazing. Let's talk about how how cities have changed over time. Ray alluded to you know when cities were built, it was horse, uh, you know, horse and buggies. I think change is a really difficult concept for folks, but it's something which is constant. Can you speak to that? Sure. Yeah. So there was this uh, book I read a little while back. It's an older book, but it's it's called Streetcar Suburbs. But it's it's basically the growth of Boston over time, and it really makes you realize how much Boston has changed. And so I think within one person's lifespan, it's really shocking and sometimes hard to deal with, you know, your neighborhood that you grew up in as a kid looking very different when you're an adult. But fundamentally, that's always been the case. So, you know, when you read that book, it talks about um, how Roxbury used to be rich people's farmland. And, you know, there were estates and there's still some, you see them peppered throughout Roxbury and Dorchester, these really beautiful houses on the highest sort of points. And then the people there moved further out of the city because what happened was development started moving out because there were these huge influxes of immigrants and they started building triple-deckers. Some of those people sort of just didn't like the change, wanted something more bucolic and moved. Some of them conscientiously, though, subdivided their property because it was a really good business move and just were like, great, I'm going to move to Weston. Yeah, Yeah, that was like phase one. Actually, Dan has a pretty cool uh, old map of what uh, Dorchester or part of Dorchester looked like. My neighborhood. Yeah, Yeah. and... um, I think that's what it was. It was Boston was mostly farmland, and well, then it that's started. Where most cities probably right. Were that's where everything they started. Were urbanized, it's, it's and that's what pretty, all the jobs were. Pretty wild to look at how the market forces really shaped the architecture of the times. You mentioned triple deckers. I mean, you you taught me essentially why that's such a prevalent uh, style in our city. Yeah, so I'm sure there's lots of other reasons that go into it, but from my understanding, it's they needed a lot of housing very quickly for immigrant uh, populations. Street frontage is what you pay for a lot of times in the lot. So they were sort of not very wide, but very deep. They were separated because then you could at least get windows down the sides, even though your neighbor might be, you know, close enough to pass the sugar to. <laughs> you did at least get some light and air in there. And they were only about as, you know, three stories tall, maybe four at the most, because there were no elevators. So that's about what you could expect people to comfortably walk up. Uh, and that's why most houses are about that height. But we don't necessarily live in that time anymore. There's different rubrics of what makes sense. So that was sort of the, sweet spot for a lot of things, even down to weird things like they were all balloon framed, which is where the studs go all the way up the building instead of, you know, stopping at each floor for a platform. They could get trees that big back then for pretty cheap. So again, you you could go up two or three stories with a single stick. That makes sense. Nowadays, it's a different metric of what the cost of construction is and where the sweet spots are. And they, you know, they were three, three units in the same building because most of the time when people, you know, when families came over, from, you know, immigrants came over, they all lived together. And mm-hmm. so there were multiple apartments in the same building. And, you know, because my, I mean, my mom grew up in Triple Decker and her grandparents lived on the first floor and in one of the units. And I think in the back, I think her like uncle or something lived in the back. So it's like the families all lived in the Triple Decker and they would all, could all contribute to the mortgage and contribute to all that. So I think that was also, you know, one a, a reason why they built those tile buildings as well. Yeah, I mean, intergenerational living was definitely a way that people made urban living more affordable. And it's it's unfortunately something you don't see anymore. And housing is incredibly expensive right now. And there's a lot of talk about workforce housing, of course. But um, that was one of the ways around it, in a way, was this intergenerational living. A lot of times people, you know, owned the building and rented out maybe one or two of the flats and lived in one, which is actually what I did in East Boston for 10 years. Nice. And and it's a great way to sort of I did that in yourself. Dorchester when I, you know, yeah. it was the only way I could afford you know, to to buy into the Boston market at the time. 
yeah, no, that makes sense. It was funny. My dad at one point said to me, he's like, so isn't your uh, paying back Sally Mae's going to be another rent, basically? And I was like, yeah, I'm double rent. And he's like, you need to figure out a way around that. And that was the way. I mean, I was pretty lucky and sort of privileged uh, that 2008 crash was happening, but they still loaned me money. It was like right at that yeah. point. <laughs> where they, Wait, which point did you buy? Right before the down or uh, oh, right every, after? Everything was going down. Yeah. So I got a short sale, which is very lucky. But at the same time, things hadn't tightened up with the lending so much that they wouldn't lend to me, even though I had a crazy amount of student debt. It was like a sweet spot where they hadn't caught, like there was a real, everything, yeah. everything hit the shit, hit the fan, but the lending requirements haven't, hadn't caught up yet. They hadn't gotten into like the Dodd-Frank oh, yeah. and all that Regulations stuff. Regulations were years away. <laughs> they yeah. just didn't want things to seize up, so they needed they needed folks like you to still buy inventory and they and they don't want to have lose a house and then it get even more uh, dilapidated, you know? Yeah, exactly. It, it was tragic what happened, of course. Um, so mine was a short sale, so I never saw the owners. It was already bank repossessed. But oh. um, but at the same time, it's uh, it's been an interesting dynamic. And of course, you know. Going back to your change comment, though, do you feel that Boston, because it's almost like when, when we were growing up, you know, I felt like Boston was like, a, it was always a smaller city. You know, it was old school. There wasn't much going on. You know, I feel like it was on the kind of like a slow growth trajectory. And then all of a sudden, I don't know, you know, 2010 maybe-ish, like it just exploded. And there's just, there has been so much building and and so much influx of of uh, talent and and wealth into the city both domestically and internationally, you know, do you feel that there's been a huge influx and maybe that's, there's been a lot of resistance to change there because I feel that, you know, it, there's been in the past decade that it's just been, the growth has been incredible. Yeah, I, well, on the way over, I was actually reading an article that was just as a report that was just released by the Massachusetts Smart Growth Alliance. And there was just a staggering statistic in there, which gets to one of the major issues why pricing for housing is just absurd, which is they basically have created three jobs to every one unit of housing that's been right. added since 2010. So between 2010 and 2017, it's like 72,000 units of housing, but 214,000 jobs. So, so logically, that means the suburbs have been absorbing the population growth. And that no, is why I, our traffic is I, so I, bad. I think, unfortunately, the suburbs haven't done enough to, to do their part in absorbing that population growth. They're, the number of municipalities in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts that allow, as of right, multifamily dwellings is abysmally small. Mm -hmm. Boston is like one of the only parts of this state that's that's actually sort of trying to add roofs over families' heads, it seems. And I know the Baker administration is looking hard at that question and trying to change legislation to sort of make it a little bit easier for, for towns to adopt new zoning. There's no longer a super majority required to, to, uh, to adapt new zoning principles. And so, uh, yeah, I think you're been a lot written on it. 40A, if I'm not mistaken, is the one where it's a two-thirds majority needed to change the zoning, local zoning ordinance. And that's that's a really high benchmark to get to. So, you know, if you could make it a simple majority, which I think what they've alluded to, if I'm not mistaken, that would certainly go a long way. But to your point, you're right. The suburbs have to do more to absorb the growth from down, because you just physically are space constrained in Boston after a certain point. And you don't want to mow down all of the historic neighborhoods to just put up, you know, high-rise residentials. There's a value to maintaining the Back Bay, the South End, some of the other areas, um, even some of the, you know, the mansions down in JP. East Boston has some beautiful historic buildings, Charleston, everywhere, you know. There's there's fabric you want to preserve. There's some fabric that's not as valuable, and that can certainly be redeveloped. But 
you know, there's a lot of buzz around regional rail uh, as, as a new thing, which is this idea of running the commuter rail within basically 95 as something between a subway and a commuter rail. So like every 15 minutes or so. Almost like a light rail like they do out in California. Exactly. So there's a lot of different cities that have a similar model. But uh, in, in talking with some transit people, they were saying, yeah, that would be great. But then the suburbs have to step up to the plate because why are we going to be running 15-minute service out to all these suburban communities if they're not going to then upzone around those commuter rail yeah, stations? Because by the time you get out there, there's going to be one person on the train. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, and fundamentally, the people in the suburbs are usually socioeconomically a little better off. So the idea of augmenting service just for that doesn't make sense unless you can try to help the housing crunch downtown by basically spreading it out a little bit. So I mean, bring, I mean, in, uh, bring in uh, congestion-based tolls to 93? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far. I mean, that's definitely a tool, potentially. I think... Manhattan's doing it in the city, certainly. I mean, yeah, if you think about it, Chicago, Chicago does it. So what was interesting, I think you have to frame it effectively. So Governor Hickenlooper out in Denver, Colorado, when he was the mayor of Denver... They built a big sort of transit system. They redid their downtown hub and built these commuter rails out there. And he went to all these suburban communities around there and was like, you know, I want to do a tax thing. You'd have to pay more taxes and we'll build this thing. And everyone's like, why well, do I want to give more taxes to the city? I don't live in the city. And he was like, well, do you, do you work in the city? And they're like, yeah. And he said, you spend a lot of time driving in because if we get X amount of people off the roads onto this, there's a certain point at which the roads sort of like unclog enough that they run normally. And he said, it's the equivalent of like five bucks a day for the average person in the burbs or something, but it would save you a half an hour on your commute. So everyone was like, he's like, would you pay five bucks to get a half an hour back each day? And everyone was like, oh. Go to Starbucks one less time a day, you know? Man, I, yeah. Did it work? So I, it, it did. It did. So they passed it and they built the system. And uh, I don't know about the figures since when they built the system. I know it's well used, but, um, but I think you need to make an argument like that to people. It has to be financially based because if you all of a sudden have taken all the cars off the road and traffic is quote unquote flowing normally, everybody's going to say, oh, well, now I can drive into the city. But the motivation- I don't know if they would though. If there was no traffic, you would, you would, you would go into the city via car. Well, it's an induced demand thing sometimes. So I guess it's the argument why sometimes building bigger and bigger highways, like adding lanes to them doesn't work. Right. It doesn't work. Works for a little while, but then everyone's like, oh, great, this moves quickly, right. and they, they jump onto it. I mean, it even happens with the T right now. So we've got a lot of mm. transit-oriented development. That's awesome. But with the current red and orange lines sort of having the age of cars they do and breaking down as much as they do, I take the orange line every day, and it's I'm lucky enough to get on at Oak Grove, so I usually get a seat. But by the time you even go one stop, it's packed in standing room only. That was actually a follow-up to my previous question about the incredible growth of the city. You know, as an urban planner, do you feel that, you know, these municipalities in, and the city of Boston, the infrastructure hasn't been able to keep up with the, with the demand? It's just, and, and I feel that the infrastructure, before, you're, before you can go to the public and ask them for more money, you got to fix the problems that you already have. And I just feel that there's so many existing problems with our current infrastructure. And we're so far behind the times in terms of just our general infrastructure around the city that, you know, what, what can we, how, how can we catch up? How is, how are they going to catch up? Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you about the infrastructure. And a lot of times infrastructure uh, predates development in Boston. It's a funny sort of thing, but um there was a gentleman, I'm blanking on his name, but he basically built what came the green lines out to the suburbs. And so he owned all that land and he consolidated the West End subway, well, trolley lines at that time, 
in order to be able to develop his land. So I'm not necessarily saying that private entities should should be building public you know, public transportation to to that, but um, but it's an interesting that he understood the re- the reciprocity between the two, and supposedly even when the farmland, like down in what would become Roxbury when it was its own town, would develop by throwing a rail line out or a trolley line out, would develop just literally along that line. There'd be this like little line of development stretching into a farm, and then it would slowly break off onto the side streets. So. We do need to invest in the infrastructure a lot more. I mean, obvious things like, I mean, Mark working in East Boston, the uh, the red-blue connection. Yeah, way overdue. Critical link that isn't just for easing people's connection between the red and the blue, but is also drawing a lot of the people who used to do probably what I used to do, switch on the green or the orange to get between the blue or the red. So all those extra people crowding the downtown stations. So Bingo. things like that, Grand Junction line, you know, sitting there relatively unused in Cambridge. I know there's a lot of ideas around it and some issues in terms of needing it for some commuter rail movements, but still you've got a, an abandoned rail line going right through Kendall Square, the yeah. beating heart of the economy here. One last thing for the population for Boston. Interesting fact, around 1950 or so, Boston was actually home to about, Boston proper was home to about 800,000 people. Now, I don't know if the boundary lines had changed at the time. I know Dorchester was in and out. That That's a, about a third of the current landmass of Boston, but currently today we're somewhere around 685, so 100,000 less. How are we getting it so wrong? Because nobody ever saw photos in 1950 and said, oh, the places, you can't get around anywhere, right? So was it just people lived more locally and now we're dealing with the, again, going back to the cars, not to beat a horse dead, but (laughs) unintended. It it is a little of that. So it's, it's, uh, it's a little of a chicken and an egg. So there was the sort of mass exodus to the suburbs post-1950. So that's why the population started to drop so much. And once you had the population start to drop, and automobile use was also on the rise because the highways were built around that period. I'm painting a very broad paintbrush here, but um, a lot of the properties were no longer that valuable or the houses fell into disrepair or disuse and they'd just be knocked down or they were not worth carrying the taxes. I heard stories of people lobbing off two stories from the top of their commercial building. There's, I think, one or two in Central Square in Cambridge where I work. Uh, where you can sort of look at the building, and you're like, that used to be taller, I can tell from the architecture. And people have suggested it might just have been that it wasn't worth, worth carrying the space if you couldn't rent it. So I think we lost a lot of building fabric to like some surface parking lots you still see all over, uh, lower density developments, you know, little one-story buildings around from maybe the 50s and 60s. So if we were to fill back in all the vacant parcels that in historic photos once had buildings, we could probably support even more than what they had, because obviously we have some much larger developments. There were no skyscrapers except for the Custom House in 1950, but... Sure. We could support more people, but we'd also, to what you had said, have to augment the the infrastructure. Because fundamentally, at a certain point, there's only so much the subway and streets can carry. Let's go back to how zoning is done. And you mentioned that your firm was recently engaged to work with the BPDA on developing a new plan for East Boston. We don't have to talk specific about that neighborhood, but I'm just curious, what would a firm like yours do when tasked with such a, uh, you know, sort of a lofty uh, task? <laughs> sure. So um, as I, I'm sure has been mentioned on previous podcasts and has definitely been bandied about in uh, Globe articles, uh, you know, something like 98% of Somerville is non-compliant, which uh, means that basically you couldn't, if your building burnt down and you wanted to duplicate it and you weren't grandfathered, you wouldn't be able to build it as of right. So mo- most of the city, and uh, I think a large portion of East Boston is the same. I think there's whole neighborhoods that have triple-deckers, three families, that are technically zoned two-family. So it's just, it's absurd. So what happens is you get 
a high level of unpredictability in what is proposed by developers. And I think that's one of the benefits, perhaps, of zoning is predictability. I know there's the Houston model, and it's sort of, it's its own thing down there. But I think for a lot of people, the predictability is, is comfortable. Uh, it might be also from a developer to know that, you know, adjacent to you is not going to be a 10-story building if you're building a triple-decker, you know? Well, it's comfortable to a developer, too, because you're much more confident at the closing table when you're purchasing something if you know uh, what you'll be able to build rather than taking a large risk. Exactly. So so the issue right now is that if you had a vacant lot that had a triple-decker on it ages ago and it's gone and you wanted to build that as a developer now, a lot of times you can't. So you go before the community and you're asking for a ton of variances. And from the community's perspective as lay people, I, I can't blame them. They're like, well, why aren't you just playing by the rules? We've got a set of rules. Why do you want exceptions to all these rules? And why does everyone want them? But it's actually because you would need them even just to build what's existing, the house that that person lives in. So the hope with these master planning efforts in the neighborhoods is to sort of tweak the zoning uh, in some areas to allow much denser zoning like dot .av. So there's uh, industrial land, well served by the red line. So that would make sense to upzone even. Other areas like East Boston, which has a, a tighter fabric, it might even be quote unquote upzoning, but it might not actually even be that much taller or denser than what's there now. It'll just make it so that you could build a four, maybe five story building, which actually there are a good number of brick five stories just in Jeffrey's Point area even. You can just build them as of right again. And it just makes it more consistent. So ideally, there'll always be variances because odd old New England property lines, but you'll see a lot less. And I think that heightened level of predictability is going to be one of the major outcomes, hopefully, of the zoning effort. And also, I'd add as a caveat, steering development. So there's some areas where if you're right around a transit station, go five or six stories. It would make sense. Those people are probably moving there because they want to take the T. If you're, you know, 10 blocks away from a T station, maybe three or four stories because they probably got a car it's a different density level. And if you're closer to some of those transit stations, add or, you know, I don't know if you make it compulsory or not, but something along the lines of ground level commercial or retail. Yes. Yeah. So one would imagine that as well. So those areas are a different animal and the zoning should really uh, acknowledge that. I mean, who doesn't want to catch the train and have their Dunkin' Donuts in the morning, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's funny. Some places exist solely off of that. I was up in... Um, Reading, doing some work in the town of Reading. There's a little Swiss baker in the old train station there. It's um, it's no longer used as a train station. It's, you know, sold or uh, leased to uh, commercial entities. But they, I think they literally make all their money off the people in the morning getting yeah. their coffee and donuts. <laughs> Brian, you mentioned earlier that usually when working with municipalities, they're talking about relinquishing some rights and letting it go to the private development community. Do you ever see something along the lines where they're doing more of an eminent, eminent domain and taking back land? And I guess the only example that comes to my mind is uh, Union Square in Somerville, where I've read and heard that there's a couple, you know, houses holding out. And I, I don't know if they're ever, they never wanted to sell when the, the offer came their way. But what do you see more? Do you see more releasing of land or do you see taking or just it's all very project specific? It's a bit project specific, I think. But um, I think municipalities in their downtown areas are wondering if some of these surface parking lots that they have are the best and highest use and are trying to look for, um, sometimes it's a public-private uh, partnership. Sometimes they'll hold the land but do a lease, a long-term lease for development so that they still have a say in it. Sometimes people feel more comfortable with that. But we just did some work with the town of Medford. They have some surplus land and they were just looking at, and you know the, the people will decide through a vote, but we were tasked with showing them, well, if you release these, what might you expect 
we had a uh, real estate economist with us. He was sort of testing what we were coming up with as designers because we don't really, we don't run the spreadsheets as much. We have general ideas, but he was making sure at least what we were showing is plausible. And it's a process of educating the community because I think a lot of times the community doesn't understand that if you lob a story off the top of a building, that really damages the ROI. So they're just like, okay, well now it's shorter, but what you also might lose is the really nice cladding material. So instead of being natural stone, it goes to being a cinder block or, or vinyl. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So there are always trade-offs. And if the community is comfortable with that trade-off, that's fine. But it's just sometimes they don't understand that that's the trade-off that you can't just sort of have your cake and eat it too. So Brian, I got a personal pet peeve here. Sure. <laughs> the new structure must look like it's always existed on that block. It must, and I'm just sort of uh, sure. mimicking things that I might hear at a uh, at a meeting. Tell me, has this happened to you recently? No. Okay. <laughs> how do you get to? Uh, how, how do people embrace a more contemporary style or a different style building amongst ones that look different? Sure. I think a lot of it has to do with contextualism. I think I would rather see a well done modern building than a poorly done facsimile of an old building because it just doesn't look right. A lot of times, also, I mean, you can do a good facsimile of an old building in historic neighborhoods that may make sense, but a lot of times the building techniques they were using back then are just different than today. Labor costs were vastly different back then, so you're not going to have some like newly immigrated stonemason from Italy come over and build, you know, carve this beautiful thing you sometimes see in the North End, these just like beautiful stoneworks, but... Or like the crazy detailed plastering, that sort of thing. That's gone. Yeah, yeah, a lot of it. I mean, even these these beautiful tiled vaults in the the Boston Public Library, it was just, you know... That's a place to go to check out some really cool architecture is the library. Yeah, it's amazing, but you you just, you can do that still. The cost is pretty high, and they're they're coming around different ways of doing it. But I think the thing is, is contextualism. It's trying to sort of do an audit of the surrounding area, understand what makes the character of that area the character, and applying that to your building. But it doesn't need to be the windows have, you know, the mullions and muttons to make it look like a six over six. It might be that the buildings around here have a pattern of windows, and your building might be super modern, have bigger windows or no muttons or mullions, but it has a rhythm like that. Or you're doing a five-story building, all the buildings around you are three stories, so you push the top two stories back five feet. And since, you know, at least in Eastie and a lot of other neighborhoods, the streets are pretty narrow in the residential areas, you'll never even really see those upper two stories. So there's sort of small things, and that way you can pick up on the cornice line of the adjacent buildings. That's a great answer. Mm. Awesome. So we have about five, ten minutes left. Do you guys want to jump into a quick game of overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated? Uh, Do we have any other questions? (laughs) I guess my question would be, going back to the, the dot .av, rezoning that you had mentioned there's existing old industrial and commercial businesses there even if this thing is passed and the next day it's stamped and it's approved what's the motivation for the current owners to sell they're not just going to automatically either self-develop and put in the roads that the city has envisioned and this sort of thing right that Mm -hmm. you know there's major major infrastructure upgrades required and it's almost a team effort. You either need a huge developer to come in and buy everything. And again, getting back to that eminent domain, how do you, how do you, I guess, motivate someone to be part of the master plan at a high level? Not just generally .av, but I'm using .av as an example. Because sure. I'm assuming by upzoning, you've now added so much value to their land that you're almost making it hard for them. To, it's like the the offer I can't refuse, right? A little bit, yeah. So, I mean, 
Hopefully, when the process started, when it's on the municipal side, so the BPDA, they do their community outreach. So hopefully the people are informed, they sort of know what's happening, they've hopefully contributed to that conversation and want to see the upzoning. Again, the huge increase in value of your land is going to make it so that you probably have like daily mailers of people wanting to buy your property. It can be challenging though, because there are some people who that money is not an issue to them. They have a place, it pays a steady rent, it's comfortable, they don't maybe live in Boston anymore, they just don't want the headache of going through it. And those can be challenging. I think a lot of times the person who makes them finally move are developers, honestly, being persistent. Relentless. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, th- I think it's just the market doing its job. It is so really. Yeah, capitalism, it's capitalism. It is a bit so, but it's interesting because it's, um, it is government-aided in a way in the sense that um, through the municipal process, you unlock the extra value there, right? So by adjusting the, the zoning or the FAR or the height density through that process and ideally getting community buy-in on that, you get so a, a great example I think of that actually is in the Fenway area. You know, people have different opinions on the architecture that's popped up on Boylston Street, but you can't deny that it's transformed in the last couple of years. And I believe that's Samuel. Yeah, and he embedded himself in the neighborhood and built a lot of um, the FAR. Previously, was two point The best and highest use was a Howard Johnson and a Wendy's and a McDonald's, and that's why Boylston Street was predominantly those uses. Yeah. But he actually, it, yeah. he got community support for the upzoning. And I think that's always the best scenario because ideally, if you've gone through that process, then the market can do what it does best and it's predictable. You can come in and know, okay, great. Community wants to see this type of thing happen and they want these uses to come into there. And Don't look at the seaport. Yeah, uh, that's a, it's got some issues with it sometimes. Well, I was going to ask about that. Like, can we just talk about the seaport for a second? Because the sure. lack of urban planning in the seaport is horrific. Yeah, it's getting better. Actually, thankfully, I'm pleasantly surprised that it's getting better. But I think a lot of it has to do with when it was planned, it was planned primarily by engineers. And engineers are great. And I work with them every day and they do amazing stuff. But uh, even just the idea of street design has come so far in 20 years with complete streets and everything. And I think you fundamentally got highway engineers laid out a lot of those streets trying to connect the off-ramps to what little pieces of an existing grid there was. And I think Ideally, what we would do as urban designers specifically, not even planners, but designers, is you want to lay out a great space. So you want to think about where the streets are pointing, you know, like the Champs-Élysées points right at the Arc de Triomphe. There's a couple of streets like First Street, I think, in um, Cambridge points directly at the Prue. So you can, you can compose really great spaces. And if you've got the block sizing and parcelization right, distribution of plazas and green spaces in transit, you know, whatever gets built there is going to be usually great. So nobody thought about the if people believe it, the climate change and the sea levels rising and will the seaport be underwater or are we going to build a gigantic barrier around Boston? It does seem a little short-sighted that there, it was a sort of a tabla rasa, you know, you could do whatever you want there and it wasn't fundamentally built in, baked into the plan for it. You know, I'm not sure it was at the front of people's minds in the 80s when it was going forward. And I think the big dig with the cost overruns and the technical complications, people probably were just like, no, no just get it done. But, um, <laughs> You know, the city's addressing it now, at least, but it is some one of those things that had it been baked into the plan from the get-go, they could have even done some things like, I know, in a, you can take tours in some of the older cities, I think Atlanta might have one, where they actually raised the streets by a story. So what was the first floor became yeah. a basement. And had they maybe done something like that when it was all just land, maybe brought the level of the streets up a little bit more. On the whole, it could have helped. Now they're going to have to do it a little more piece by piece or a barrier. That would actually be pretty cool. 
to just say, you know what? Everything's going up a story from ground level. Your ground level unit is now a uh, garden level unit. <laughs> be, I think it'd be cheaper to just plan for it ahead of time. But <laughs> yes. uh, here, here we are. <laughs> anyway, I think we could definitely do a second part to this. And Brian, we'd love to have you back. But uh, before we go, let's hit a quick game of yeah. overrated, underrated. And uh, I'll Ooh. kick it off. Do you know how this game works? I'm not exactly sure. Let's uh, explain the ground rules. So we're going to tell you a term or a concept, and you can tell us whether you know it's it's totally underrated. Everybody should be doing it, or you know everybody's doing it and it's terrible, and no one should be doing it. Or or, or appropriately rated, which is self-explanatory. Okay. Bicycle lanes. This is already really okay. So I think in in general, in general, underrated. I think they're a great part of the infrastructure. I used to ride my bicycle around Boston before I did this and had to use a car to get everywhere and people would flip me off as they're driving by. You either love them or hate them. Yeah, no, I love them. I just think, you know, it, it, they get really challenging in some of the streets in Boston. Agreed. No, I wanted to use bike lanes. So we'll go with floor area ratios. Overrated. I think it's not necessarily always the best metric. Um, and I know some municipalities that are actually moving away from FAR. So it was no, Which no FAR. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know them off the top of my head, but there are, I mean, even actually, so I live in Melrose and I was looking at some of the zoning and some of the zoning just says none in the FAR category. And I don't know, you might see more of people moving towards different metrics instead. How about electric scooters? Ooh. Have you seen them? You know I, I've seen them. To? I've never ridden them. I know auspiciously one of the first people to ride them in Boston at a press conference fell and had to go to the hospital. <laughs> so Bro- Brookline passed. The, uh, it might have been Brookline. in Brookline. Oh, they're allowed? Oh, yeah. The okay. Lime bikes and the uh, the other ones yeah. are all over Brookline. Now, was that to go use the street as if you were a vehicle? Yeah. Well, I think okay. it's to take cars off the street and let people, you know, stop relying on Ubers for $4 rides yeah. when you can get from one meeting to the next. I would say appropriately for that. I just think some of these things get rolled out before they've had a chance to think through the infrastructure. So that's always the issue with the dockless ones. I appreciate the uh, the mentality, though. It's sort of an Uber approach where just release it and let the regulations catch me or, you know. It is interesting. And I think I think fundamentally, the more modalities you have and more options people have in the network, the better on the whole. So that's why I'd say bike lanes are great. The scooters are generally great. Just one of those things where you don't want the negative externalities of it to sort of ruin things. Like if you go to, they have them all over California. Mm-hmm. So if you go to LA and Santa Monica and stuff, the, they're really nice. It's a nice amenity, but the only downside is like at the end of the day, you'll go down the street, there'll be like a pile of them because everyone just yeah. leaves them. Because Actually, similar- I'm pretty sure they have services out there now where it's almost like a uh, at a certain time, they have, they let the the just civilians, almost like an Uber-type activity. They go around, they pick them all up and bring them back to a charging station. And they no, pay they're them all solar-powered. But they pay them per device. I'll have to look more into this. But All right, one last one each. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're running over time. We're going to do oh, this again. Oh, let's not worry about it. Don't worry about it. No. All right, next, last one. Street, street trees. Underrated. They produce, provide so many things. I mean, you see the old pictures of the elms before they all got hit with Dutch elm disease, and it was just beautiful, arching over. Reduce heat island effect, habitat. How about just landscaping in general from a development standpoint? Yeah, I think it's underrated. I think yeah. it can do a lot. I mean, you know, unfortunately, landscape architects who we work with a ton and sometimes lead projects we work on, they sort of get relegated to the end. And and also when the budget's running thin, it's one of the first and easiest things to axe. But it can really have an effect on how well a building integrates. So one of uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's famous quotes is, uh, 
doctors get to bury their mistakes. Architects can only advise clients to plant vines. So <laughs> bad buildings can be masked by trees. That's great. Ray, last one. Oh, man. A lot of good ones on here. I want to do two of them, and I can't choose between them, but I'll choose one. We'll go with uh, Airbnbs. If uh, so, what's the middle Under, one? Under, appropriate, or over? I'd say maybe appropriate. I think the issue there is if they were used as intended as like individual people being able to monetize their places when they're going on vacation or like sort of a swap, awesome. When they get turned into like basically hotels that aren't on the books, that's the problem because they drive up housing costs. So owner-occupied Airbnb, thumbs up. Yep. Investor Airbnb, no dice. Yeah. I, Sorry, developers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Sorry, if you want to develop a hotel, <laughs> that's cool. And and maybe there need to be new models for how a hotel works or like a boarding house type of thing. But it's not even zoning. I guess it is zoning. It's it's use, right? It's not necessarily yeah, not, the building specifics. It's the intended use of it. And I, I agree. Think so I agree. Cool. You don't have another? Oh, you want me to do one more? I think you have one left. Okay. Um, how about why? What's Europe? I just put that there. <laughs> Europe, just, respond. Oh, boy. <laughs> you got to be underrated, right? Europe's awesome. It's great. You're an urban planner. Yeah, no, it's gorgeous. Was that it? <laughs> yeah, no, no, we'll do. No, so they snuck in an extra one there. Go ahead. Uh, we'll do micro units. Micro units. Europe was more interesting. <laughs> I have a friend who'll be mad at me. I think sometimes they're overrated. And I'll just put the caveat that I think they can be a great tool but what I'm seeing happen is they keep getting built in the most expensive areas of the city. So I don't know that they're actually putting a big dent in the housing crisis as it was just because they're already super hot markets. So when they get built, they still are almost going for what maybe a year before the one bedrooms went for now these sort of studios are. So I don't know that they're helping catch up. If you were to build a bunch of micro units a little further out from the downtown core, you might start to make a dent in other communities. I need to talk to Jason Sincata about the economics of that because I hear what you're saying, yeah. but I think like under further scrutiny, I, I don't think that stands up. But I appreciate where you're coming from. It might not. We want to have you back for a second episode. Yes, I, love I think we definitely should. Yeah, no, that'd be fantastic. And uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks to everybody. Yeah, Right. Thank you. And if people want to learn more about the company that you're at, uh, Gamble Associates, how, yeah, they how do they follow? How do they get in touch, get in touch with you? Or uh, not on Instagram? So yeah, uh, Instagram. yeah I, I think we have a Facebook page, but uh, we have a our website is uh, gamble so g a m b l e a s s o c dot com. Nice, a little Perfect. of a mouthful. But. You want to put your your personal info out there at all, or no? Brian uh, Brian Gregory at Gamble Associates. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, Brian at gambleassociates.com. Cool, cool. Her. Thanks, Brian. Yeah. Cheers. It's been awesome. Thanks, All everybody. right. We'll catch everybody on the next one. Take See care. Ya. You.